Hello, welcome to the February 2023 episode of Chattering with ISFM. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and host of this month's podcast. This month, we're sharing the first of our In Conversations With sessions. These were recorded live at our Rhodes Congress last year. We're going to be sharing the discussion that ISFM's own Dr. Sam Taylor had with Professor Claire Rusbridge, and they were speaking about neuropathic pain. We're also featuring our monthly JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview. This month, I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Freeman about feline mandibular fractures. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for our In Conversation session. You all know Claire. She is an RCBS and European specialist in veterinary neurology. And we're here to talk about neuropathic pain. So I'll open that up by asking you, what is neuropathic pain? We really recognise three different types of pain. And you have to remember the purpose of pain is a protective response to protect you from injury. So the most simple type of pain is your simple nociceptive response. So you walk across the floor, you stand on a tack, you realise that the tack is there, that your foot is, is injured. This information is relayed to your brain without you having to make any adjustments, you will withdraw your foot, but you have this conscious perception of pain. It makes you uh, have a behavioral change to take your action. The next type of pain is inflammatory pain. So the inflammatory mediators are released. So we say the first stages of osteoarthritis, and then that starts your pain process. Neuropathic pain implies abnormal processing of that pain information, either in the peripheral level or at the central level. So it implies there's been some maladaptive synaptic plasticity to mean that you have an abnormal perception of pain so that impulses that should not be painful are perceived as painful. One of the problems we have with pain really is it's a very subjective experience. So when humans will often describe neuropathic pain as burning or electric shocks or other sensory perceptions that you wouldn't normally associate with pain like ice cold. Animals can't do that. And so you, make, uh, you often make a lot of assumptions when we're talking about neuropathic pain in animals and, and it makes it very difficult to diagnose. What will the owners notice? Is it always self-mutilation type things? Or Well, neuropathic pain is classically where they are mutilating, possibly. Although we have to be very careful when we say mutilation because we don't know what's driving them. Neuropathic pain is actually very difficult to diagnose because you don't, it is subjective and you don't have that descriptive element and you really have to base it on the animal's behavioural response and hopefully some evidence of neurological injury. One of the struggles is identifying neuropathic pain and distinguishing it from emotional distress. Do you have any tips? Well, you have to take a very good history. The uh, cortical limbic system processes pain and the cortical limbic system processes emotion. There is an overlap between the two. And painful conditions are more likely to result in behavioural problems and emotion-based problems are more likely to trigger pain syndromes or make them worse. And so whenever you're investigating one of these conditions, you have to investigate the environment of the cat, even when you come in with preconceptions about it. It is tedious to try to explore that in a five-minute, ten-minute consultation 
it does need to be explored. You need to send the owner away with homework to explore it in a kind of non-threatening way to the owner. I create some kind of questionnaire that we, we would use or get the owner to video, that sort of thing. Yeah. What are your treatment options for neuropathic pain? So you get these synaptic changes that basically mean that one neurotransmitter is really going a long way in those cases, and that is uh, synaptic wind-up. So when we are uh, treating neuropathic pain, you have to think that's what we are treating. And really, when we use drugs for treating neuropathic pain, we have to say there's very, very few drugs, and none of them um, that are available for cats, that are used directly to treat neuropathic pain with the exception of Silencia. That is our only drug. There's nothing else that's ever been developed that is actually to treat neuropathic pain. All of the other ones are what we call adjunctive drugs that we have borrowed from other things. So we've got the sodium channel blockers and things like lidocaine, which I use a lot in various different forms, either as a CRI or as local anaesthetic right down to amitriptyline, which we use more regularly in cats. I don't, it tastes foul, they hate it. Owners hate it more because they try to give it to the cat and it foams everywhere. My love, my Dexdomator for pain relief, absolutely love it. And of course, we have the opioids. So these are the sort of drugs that we have available to us. The ones that I use actually depend on the condition. So they may respond to gabapentin and pregabalin, um, but actually they, they do surprisingly well on phenobarbital, and that often is, is, is more effective than those drugs. There will be some cases that I will use that on. Vaja phenobarbital is also, is like I, I'll often try it once daily. I don't need to tell you that that is an advantage. Gabapentin is, uh, I think you're probably all familiar with, pregabalin. I don't think you're necessarily quite as familiar with. It binds to the receptor for longer with more affinity. So it's a, a, a BID drug. Uh, you get have a lower dose. And I, it's, it's surprising. It can be extremely useful. And uh, I will often maybe start them on gabapentin but switch to pregabalin. Pregabalin you can get as a liquid. So I may actually just start with the, with the pregabalin as, a, as an easier drug. And now I'm going to be talking to Dr. Alex Freeman about her JFMS Clinical Spotlight article on mandibular fracture repair techniques in cats, a dentist's perspective. What would be your top tips for us in GP practice with these cases when they present to us to really sort of start that diagnostic workup? What kind of things do you like to see when they get referred to you? Um, I guess from a head trauma point of view, I think, yes, having stabilised the patient, I think that there's a lot that you can do in the initial assessment where you also might, for example, take your, your other diagnostic investigations like your chest or abdomen radiographs or, or point of care ultrasounds. It's really important to just do your basic assessments, like do a detailed oral examination, get your periodontal probe out, have a good poke and prod in the mouth. Some people haven't even looked at the mouth when they refer these cases to us, which is totally fine because they're coming to see us. But, you know, when, when looking after them in, in primary care practice, it's just really important not to overlook simple things like oral wounds, oral lacerations, fractured teeth. You know, I guess that's one of my big bugbears. But, but the enamel on cat's teeth is, is very, very thin. So therefore, 
what might appear to be very small damage to the teeth can actually cause the patient an overwhelming amount of pain because that small amount of damage has caused a complicated crown fracture and an exposed pulp. So I think in practice, really, my top tips are to do a good clinical examination, particularly checking for any damage that you might miss with a quick glance in the mouth. And then really closely assessing the occlusion because that's the thing that's primarily going to dictate how much treatment this patient needs for its head trauma. If the teeth are lined up well, if you can check at the front and at the back both sides and there is a good occlusion, then actually most of those patients can be managed in a really conservative manner. If you've got a malocclusion, then at that point you really need to think about what part of the face that's broken is, is causing that malocclusion and take it from there. But you can certainly go a long way with these patients by doing a detailed oral examination and particularly closing any oral wounds as well. It's surprising how much stability that can add to a patient that's got facial fractures. Just close, simple things like closing the oral wounds can help them out a lot. Thank you for listening. If you're an ICPM member, you can hear more from Dr. Freeman with her full interview being available on the ICPM members podcast. To access this, please visit portal.icatcare.org. As well as the podcast, you can also access all the other ICPM member benefits, including Professor Rusbridge's lectures from our ICPM Rhodes Congress, monthly webinars, the discussion forum, and much, much more. Don't forget, JFMS is now also an open access journal, so if you wish to read Dr. Freeman's Clinical Spotlight article, please do follow the link in the show notes. If you're looking for more CPD in March, we have an open access webinar from Royal Canaan. Doctors Sam Taylor and Cecilia Villaverde are going to be speaking on inappetence and feeding tubes in cats, and that's going to be going live on the 2nd of March. We'll be back next month with more interviews recorded at ISFM Roads and next month's JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview.